0: And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Heavenly Father, may this be so. In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 Thank you. you. May be seated. Hello, everyone. Hello. It is wonderful to be here with you, even with masks and distancing and air hugs and all those kinds of things. Uh, <laughs> my name is Steve Breelove, and I have the privilege of being the Bishop of the Diocese of Christ, our hope. And today is a confirmation Sunday. I'll speak to that in just a moment. But right now, I just wanna say how thankful I am to be with you and gathered worship. Thankful it is a confirmation Sunday. Thankful that my wife, Sally, gets to be here because the few times that I've been able to go have real live worship in the last COVID season, Sally, had not been able to come. I think this may be the first or at the most second time that we've been able to be in church together. We miss you. We miss being in church. And I've been here often enough over the years to say to you for real, when I say for real. In other words, this is what I'm supposed to say. I really love you guys. Okay, it's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, today will be Confirmation Sunday for 12 people who are members of Christ Church, and they are taking a significant step in their Christian discipleship. And you can build your understanding of Confirmation around four C words. First, they are confessing their faith again. They're and it's, again declaring again this is what they believe. And we'll use the, they'll say that. Uh, But we'll also use the creed for all of us to be able to reaffirm our baptismal vows, our baptismal creed. They are committing anew to their personal relationship, to pursue their personal relationship with Jesus and to serve the work of the ministry within the world and within the church. It'll be a time of consecration because I have the privilege of praying for the renewal and strengthening of the Holy Spirit to enable them to fulfill those commitments. Because you cannot know Christ or serve Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'll be praying for them in particular for their own spiritual life and their own ministries. And then they're taking a step into this communion, this family, which, was in the, which is in the greater family of Christ, and that is this Anglican church. So it's a significant step of Christian discipleship on many levels. So that, in turn, gives me an opportunity to preach and teach about discipleship, which is one of my favorite topics, <laughs> it's a pretty easy to talk uh, talk about from the scriptures because pretty much any place you turn in the Bible could serve as our text, and any of the texts that were read today could serve as my text. But that's because discipleship really is the question of faith and life. What do we believe? Who do we believe? What do we know from God, and how do we live in response? to what he tells us about himself in scripture. God's goal through Christ is the redemption of all things. And we, if you're a follower of Christ, are the first fruits of that redemption. He is seeking to use us and through us to change and affect the world around us through the power of the Spirit as we advance the kingdom of God, this redemption of all things. And discipleship is this all-encompassing project of us participating in our own lifelong transformation into the people of God who live in this generation and in this particular moment in history. There's always something to learn in that. There's always something to do. There's always something to understand. There's always opportunity to grow. And every day, I mean, I've been at it for over 50 years in my own discipleship. And every day, I have the joy of discovering anew what to know, what to do, what to think, what to feel, how to act. In our gospel passage today from John chapter 15, Jesus directly addresses his 11 disciples on the topic of discipleship. Now, you notice I said 11, right? And that's because Judas had already slipped out to do his nefarious work, right? Right? It is one of the central passages of direct teaching from the master disciple maker about this central project, discipleship. So I want to dig in with you, see what we can learn about practically participating in the discipleship project. So I ask you if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 15. If you have a phone, you're welcome to turn your phone on. Just turn your little ringer thing off. And uh, I'm going to encourage you, if you have the means of doing so, to even jot down some notes. I'm, it's, we're going to be kind of a sweep, an overview uh, in some ways, although we're just sticking with this passage. But there'll be words that I share that will, I think, if you track with them, you can connect them to the other text that we read today. I'll mention some connections as we go along. But I would encourage you to realize that this is a, a message that gives you the opportunity to do some personal digging, both in the text itself out of John 15, but also back in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 1 and other passages that I may reference. The central issue that Jesus introduces is that discipleship is abiding in Jesus. Verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding is essentially a synonym for discipleship. And it can be translated remaining, staying with, being at home with, connecting with. So Jesus is saying discipleship is essentially about our relationship with him and our connection with him. That's at the core of it. And Jesus illustrates it with this image of vine and branches. Now, for people living in an agrarian world where vineyards and viticulture were visible in every direction, uh, it was a powerful illustration. I mean, immediately connected with them. Now, we're far removed from that agricultural world, maybe not so much with the product of that agricultural world. You know, we could connect with that. But uh, we are far removed from it, but not so far removed that we cannot understand or imagine the point. We can understand and imagine the closeness and the connection, the actual physical intimacy between vine and branches that opens up our mind to the actual relationship that we have with Jesus. See, it's an illustration, vine and branches, because the reality is the actual relationship. And in this relationship, we are face-to-face, hand-to-hand, touching at every point, connecting in every way we possibly can imagine. We can understand and imagine the dependence that this indicates, because just as the vine gives life to the branch, we receive life from Jesus, and it's our job to participate and share in the very life of Christ, and we can imagine those aspects, but I want to take it a little bit further because I think mothers may have a leg up on the rest of us in understanding what's going on here, or at least feeling the power of it, imagining the sort of intimacy and sharing of life because mothers have had the experience of carrying a child in the womb, connected to them by... an umbilical cord. They've had the experience of bearing a child through whom, the, um, through the umbilical cord flowing nourishment and oxygen. But in that, there is an intimacy and a sharing of life that I, as a man and a father, cannot really feel. Sally, like most every mother that I've ever known, would speak about a connection to our children that is deeper than words can describe. A sense of a sharedness of life. And in some sense, if if you'll go with me here and if I can use this illustration, I understand it more in walking with Sally and with one of our daughters and with other women who I've ministered to as a pastor who've gone through the sorrow of miscarriage. Because when you bear a child unto birth, the focus turns from the pregnancy into the life that you're holding. But unfortunately, with a miscarriage, what we have left is the sorrow and the emotion of having been that close to someone that you never hold. And when I've sat with Sally through our two miscarriages or our daughter through her three miscarriages, we've experienced the loss and the sorrow that is magnifies. that actually magnifies and focuses on the closeness that was there in the womb. I think Jesus' call to abiding has that power, that depth of intimacy that a mother can feel of a shared life. But here's a huge difference. It doesn't end after 40 weeks of gestation. It is meant to continue the rest of our lives. So understanding what it means to abide in Jesus may be, I think, one of the most important and helpful conversations about discipleship we could possibly have. Now, before I go on to talk about how to abide, because we're going to get into that, I want to answer something else, because Jesus, every time he talks about abiding in this passage, ties it immediately and consistently to another idea, which is what? What, Do you get it? Abiding so that you might, what? Bear fruit, bear fruit. You got it. Fruitfulness. The life that Christ gives us is always tied to bearing fruit, and in fact, Salvation is never an end game that focuses on us and self-fulfillment. It is always the giving of the life of Christ in us and through us that might then therefore give life to others. So it is a fruit-bearing life by definition. By definition, the life of Jesus bears fruit. And so therefore the life of Jesus in us, if it's there, will bear fruit. We are the direct beneficiaries of the work of God through Jesus Christ. We have eternal life and abundant life given to us, but we're never the end game. We're never the final goal. We are irrigation ditches, folks. (laughs) We exist to bring water to the fields. At one time, we were the fields, by the way, but as soon as the, the, the water of life has come into our souls and we've received it and absorbed it, there's this miraculous alchemy in which we are suddenly broadened to become an irrigation ditch to take it further. And oh, by the way, irrigation ditches get to drink the water the whole time. (laughs) And they're the greenest places around. But their purpose is not to keep the water, but to pass it on and to take it someplace else. So I want you to get the picture here. This intimacy and this connection that is communicated by the word abiding is constantly connected to fruitfulness because that's who our God is. That's the life of God, folks. That's what God is like. Having said all that, now the question is, what does Jesus teach us about how to abide? And there are six specifics that he says. And by the way, each of them is referred to twice, at least. Maybe one of them more than that. So it's like he says it, and then later on he says it again, okay? He's saying it and saying it again. You would never do that as a father or mother, would you? But anyway, (laughs) six ways in which we abide. The first is simply this, we must listen to the words of Jesus, the word of God. Not just the red letter words in your Bible, but the whole message of God. Look at verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. And then in verse 15 he says this, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I have made known to you. And the image in verse 15 is that Jesus is going to meet with us and talk with us day after day after day, opening up his word to us so we understand him a little bit better and know his ways a little bit more. What he doesn't do is put everything he wants to teach us out on one meal table and say, go at it. Any more than you'd put everything even for a whole day or two days or a week on a table and say, eat what you want as it comes. No, you would feed a meal at a time. And so there's this idea that we're going to learn more and more and eat more and more as we go. Now, let me just take it and say it directly. It is impossible, and I'm going to say it very bluntly. It is impossible to be a growing, active disciple without regularly reading and listening to the scriptures. We need to learn and grow every day in the knowledge of God. And I want to encourage you that this is not second-hand food, not pre-digested by somebody else. I'm asking you to personally go into the Word of God on a regular basis, come up with some way that works for you. There's a thousand different ways, there's probably far more than that, of creative ways and creative times to read through the Scriptures, at least to have some encounter with the Scripture on a regular basis, if not every day, at least most days. And as you go to live with the expectancy that this is the living word of God, God's word is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword, it's expected to pierce, it's expected to reveal, it's expected for us to have that aha moment where we realize again and again afresh what we may already have heard a thousand times in our life, but it becomes new to us again. There's this, always this newness and vitality that comes as we listen to the word of God. And I promise you this, if you come seeking the Lord, he says, you'll find me. You'll find me. In the same way, second, it's impossible to be a disciple of Jesus in any active and real sense without prayer. Again, back to verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you have a mind that's being formed by the word of God, Jesus opens the door to your prayer life. I think that those are connected, by the way, because I think our minds have to be formed and focused by the word of God in our prayer life. But he says, the door is wide open. In verse 16, he echoes it again. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Discipleship is essentially not about information transfer, but it is about prayer, conversation, and the transformation that comes through a relationship. It's about listening. It's about wrestling things out with God. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 says in everything by prayer and supplication. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, pray without ceasing. 1 Peter says, casting all your cares upon him. Or he cares for you. Matthew chapter 11, which we'll recite again later on in the, in the, script, in the, in the service today. Come to me all ye that are weary and are heavy laden. And I love that image. We all love that image of coming into the yoke with Jesus and walking with him. But if you're going to be in a yoke with somebody and you're going to do work for the day, guess what? You're going to talk to each other. You're going to interact. And that's exactly what, I'm, uh, what Jesus teaches us. Third point about abiding, abiding in Jesus is actually a call to love the Lord. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And then later on in verse 14, he expands that image of direct image of love. He says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. So the love relationship we have with Jesus is also called a friendship, which, of course, involves emotion. It involves closeness. It involves liking to be with somebody wanting to be with them and loving them. Now, for some of you, it may be that that image of loving Jesus in that very friendship-loving-felt way may make you squirm. It just may be like, I have all, I, my faith is clear, I know what I believe, I'm, I believe these things, but I just don't know how to go to this relationship that has emotion to it. And I understand that because of times in my own life and people that I'm very, very close to and love who I think would be quite uncomfortable if I pressed the issue. How would we overcome that? Well, we know from the Scripture that the starting point of our love for God is always realizing again and afresh his love for us. We love him because he first loved us. Our love is always a response and an echo of a love that's already there that's been headed for us and directed at us for all of eternity. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to read the 1 Corinthians passage. Because this church, in its many, many, many struggles, Paul was beginning to address them. But the first thing he wanted to put on the table in 1 Corinthians 1, if you look at the whole chapter is God is committed to you, God loves you, God will keep you, God can be trusted for you, God is faithful to you, and God loves you. And the measure and depth of God's love for us, Paul says, is the cross of Jesus Christ. I think that that's why there's times in life when when we really need to focus on the cross in order to be renewed in the love of God. In Lent and Holy Week and especially Good Friday, the church is well served to simply sit at the foot of the cross and contemplate and ponder and meditate on the depth and the extent of God's love for us. And it's amazing to think that the church has set aside seasons when that's the focus. Because in the wisdom of God, the church knows we need to love him more. Now, there's something else, though. 1 Corinthians 8 says something else. If anyone loves God, he, finishes the sentence. I've said already that the way that we love God is that we know his love for us. So you would think logically that the finishing of the sentence, if anyone loves God, he knows how much God loves him. That's not what it says. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So there's this reciprocal place in which we hear the love of God for us, but if we have a love relationship with God, it's because we have opened ourselves up. We let God know us. We hold nothing back. We are honest with who we really are, and we discover the miraculous truth that God loves who we really are, not who we pretend to be or not who we aspire to be. That's great to aspire, but that's not where you are yet. So does God love you when you get there, or does God love you now? See, week after week after week we come in to church and we have the gift of confession when we admit who we really are. And we discover anew within the declaration of the absolution and the declaration of the gospel that God loves who we really are and he knows who we really are and it is our, I think, connection to him when we open up to let him know us just like we do with one another. A love relationship never really goes anywhere until both parties open up. And God has opened himself up to us. Well, we open ourselves up to him. The fourth instruction on abiding is that abiding in Jesus takes practical obedience. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then in verse 14, you're my friends if you do what I command you. I'm not going to say a lot about obedience except to read for you one of my favorite quotes from George McDonald, who I can hardly wait to meet. Someone says to George McDonald, but I do not know how to awake and arise spiritually, quote unquote. McDonald responds, I will tell you. Get up and do something the master tells you. (laughs) so that you make yourself his disciple at once. Instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said do it or once abstained because he said do not do that. It is simply absurd to say you believe or even want to believe in him if you do nothing he tells you. If you can think of nothing he has said as ever having an atom of influence on your doing or not doing, you have good ground to consider yourself no disciple of his. But you can begin at once to be a disciple of the living one by obeying him in the first thing you can think of in which you're not obeying him. We must learn to obey him in everything, so let's begin somewhere. Let it be at once in the very thing that lies at the door of our conscience. If I ask you or if you ask me, is there one thing that you immediately believe God wants you to do or not do, every one of us has an answer for that if we're thinking about anything. We know it. So the question is, will we? That's what George McDonald is saying. Start. Get after it. Stop trying to find out whether you feel like a disciple. Be one. Be one. If he says, don't do it, stop it. Have a Bob Newhart moment, you know? Some of you will get that. Anyway. O fools and slow of heart, if you think of nothing but Christ, think of nothing but Christ, but do not set yourself to do his words, You have built your house on the sand. The word of God, prayer, a love relationship with Jesus, obedience. And it's fifth, amazing to me that Jesus ties abiding with him, intimacy with him, and a love relationship with him to loving each other. He says you can't have it without that verse 12 this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends you're my friends if you do what I command you and then verse 17 these things I command you so that you may love one another and make no mistake Jesus doesn't stutter here if we really love each other it demands sacrifice we'll have to give up something We'll have to give up our pride. We'll have to give up our sense of being better than other people. We'll have to give up our resentment. We'll have to give up the wounds that we carry. If we're going to really love each other, we're going to actually have to give up some time. We're going to have to actually talk to each other. We're going to have to dig in and get below the surface and not just sit here and hold our positions and shoot at each other from the corners. St. John makes the connection very, very clear in his first epistle. He says, don't even pretend to say that you love God if you refuse to love the children of God. And this command is based really simply on the love and mercy that God has for every person. We are all objects of his mercy. Again, back to 1 Corinthians, this division that was rampant, the factions that were rampant were rooted in pride, a deep belief by people that they were superior or more worthy because they had a better handle on the truth than other people. And what I would say is if you think you have a better handle on the truth, though, therefore you look down on other people, I'll say this. Perhaps you do have a better handle on the truth. So what? Because Paul goes on to say, get real with who you really are at the end of chapter 1. Who are you really? Who are we really at the essence? And then he says in chapter 4, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything we've been given. We have nothing but what we have been given. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says, if you use your knowledge as a means of wounding another person, you know nothing he says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I know everything but have not love, I am a noisy gong, cl- uh, noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Paul's pretty clear on this one, right? <laughs> Jesus is saying, I'm telling you this, this abiding in me, this Bearing fruit needs to show up immediately in the love relationship within the body of Christ. And let me just pause here. I don't want to, I I was really tempted to spend a lot more time on this than I'm going to spend. But right now, probably the, if you've been listening to the news in the last week, the number one word that you've heard repeated again and again and again and again and again is unity. And there is a great desire in our country for unity right now, at least by many people that are. Communicating. And it's a lovely idea. I mean, I would pray for the same thing. I would pray that, that according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, that peace would reign so that the gospel might be expanded. We're commanded to pray for that. I, I have no questions about that. But the fact of the matter is that the unity on which we are built uh, in a nation right now in particular is paper thin because it's slogans and music that makes us feel good for a few minutes. But in Christ, in the church, unity should be much more substantial, in fact, true unity. Go back to the Ephesians passage and dig it out. Folks, the the Ephesians passage unpacks unity in a way that helps us realize that it is transformative. It changes us because of what it requires of us to actually be one with each other, to contribute to each other's lives, because all of us are needed. Everyone is needed. We are all objects of mercy. We are all stewards of the grace of God. We are all called to contribute. We're all called to receive. And the image of the body of Christ is a society that is different than any political system will ever produce in the history of humanity. A shining hill, a shining city on a hill. The church is meant to be different, folks. And unity is one thing that sets us apart because it's substantial, it's real it's honest, it's open, it's loving. The last comment I want to make about abiding goes back to the indelible connection with fruit fruit bearing because the two are always connected. And therefore, we can say that the call to abide is a call to being partners and co-laborers with Jesus in his work in the world, and we need to be intentional about it. the, The people that are coming for confirmation have articulated to me ways in which they want to be intentional about bearing fruit. And it's to that end we pray. And that's wonderful, and I would just encourage us all to that end and to realize that what we are to be intentional about is beyond what we are to do by way of success in our our professions and our achievements. It is to minister on behalf of Jesus Christ and be agents of redemption and love in the world today. Now, as I close, I want to mention one thing to you. I think this is pretty cool. Because right in the middle of this teaching, because Jesus is sort of unpacking this image of discipleship, you know, i.e. abiding with fruitfulness, and right in the middle of the teaching, he pauses and turns the focus on the disciples themselves, and he says this, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So he's simply saying this, everything I'm telling you about the word and prayer and obedience and loving Jesus and loving each other and intentionalizing your ministry in the world, all of that, It's for your joy. All the fruit that we are to bear is good and delicious and beautiful and attractive and joyful. And guess what? That's what you get to eat too. We're all invited to live. We're being invited to live with the grain of what it means to to be a Christian. We're living with the grain. We, We are joining in the flow of the life of God into the world. And there is great joy in that. And if there's anything in this world that's in short supply, it's joy. This is a joyless world. And folks, Jesus has just outlined the path to true joy, the path of discipleship. Discipleship defined and directed by the dream and the call to abiding in Jesus and bearing much fruit.